This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today, we have a priest and a Jewish rabbi. Yeah, we're going to be talking about our shared father, Abraham. We're going to be talking about the fact that our Lord and the apostles and Mary were Jewish. We're going to be talking about the Seder meal in relationship to the Last Supper. And we're going to be talking about the historical context of the relationship between Catholics and Jews. So a priest and a rabbi and two Ryans. Come on. You don't want to miss this show. guys really excited today about this episode uh we've got a rabbi here with us rabbi dan gordon from humble texas and uh his synagogue is temple beth torah which means the house of learning oh, great perfect, perfect. We're gonna we can use that today so as always we got ryan ryan father rich and rabbi dan thanks for coming we really oh, my appreciate pleasure it. i'm excited yeah. about it and here in the u catholic studios again my friends Connect with us online, www.catholictalkshow.com, as well as all of our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and continue to support the show, patreon.com forward slash Catholic Talk Show, so that we can have engaging learning sessions just like this with Rabbi Dan. This is going to be an awesome show. So let's get started. What are we going to be talking about today? All right, so you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into the topics? Um, you know, Let us know where you're from and... Uh, about your synagogue. All right. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which Boom. I know. I'm I know. My, my, Are you a Steelers my fan? Friends. I am a Steelers look, fan. Oh, look, there's be. more contention between you and I over the Browns and the Steelers than Judaism and Catholicism. I, I, I totally <laughs> agree. Right. I totally agree. Um, I don't know if there's been as many uh, anti Semitic acts as there have been anti Steeler acts. <laughs> <laughs> but we had, yes, but I did grow up in Pittsburgh. I've been in Houston for close to 30 years. Oh. I've been with Temple Beth Torah for just over 20 years. And um, I started out as a summer camp director and a professional storyteller and an actor. And I went to the University of Michigan, another bone of contention with wow. my Ohio friends. <laughs> this yes. is going to be very oh, good. A Wolverine Stealer. <laughs> Goodness me. You know. uh. But uh, my, my temple is in Humble, Texas. Uh, it's in a sea of churches. It's the only synagogue around. And it's not in one of those, um, one of those distinctions that you know, like Orthodox, Reform, Conservative. Mm -hmm. We're sort of independent. Okay. We have some more traditional people, some less traditional people, a very small place. But I've been involved as long as I've been a rabbi with connecting with other faiths. I've taken a few interfaith trips to Israel, and we really believe in the whole spirit of inclusion and the spirit of dialogue and being able to understand our differences in theology as well as our similarities of values. So now you've done a lot of, I guess, instruction of, of Christians in the past where you've, you've spoken to Catholic churches and Presbyterian churches to help 
Christians better understand the Jewish roots of their own faith and then the context with they can understand Judaism and continue relations going forward. Is that correct? Yeah. And what I think is one of the most exciting things is to recognize both the similarities and the differences. Mm -hmm. We have a tradition of Midrash, which is the the concept of looking at sort of the imagination Mm -hmm. of instead of just the text of what happened, the concepts of what might have happened. Um, That's actually one of my favorite things of Jewish tradition is they'll they'll take an obscure name or obscure place and they'll and they will extrapolate that and find more details about all those little things. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. The, in order to qualify as a, an official classic midrash, um, it includes at least one line of sacred text. That's right. And so it might be something like uh, God says to Abraham, "Go unto yourself and leave your father's house." Mm-hmm. Genesis chapter twelve. There's a whole story about why is God talking to Abraham or Abram, as right. he as he's called at that time, because it doesn't say anything right before that about how Abram distinguished himself. And so there's this whole legend about uh, Abram's father, Terach, being an idol maker. I remember this. Yeah. Yes. And that he left Abram, who actually in the Midrash is called Abraham mm-hmm. because it's a timeless kind of a tale. So he leaves his son to watch the shop, and his son isn't doing a very good job. Isn't there a whole room of clay statues or it's something? It's a whole room of clay yeah, statues, exactly. It's a room of clay statues, and there's his son. People are coming in asking to buy these idols, and Abraham says, well, why are you buying something that was just made yesterday to worship? And he's not making very good sales. And here's where the sacred text comes in. Uh, he bring, He gifts the idols brings them food. And of course, they don't eat. Right. Nothing happens. So he says, he quotes from the Psalms, which is an amazing thing about Midrash, because Abraham can quote from the Psalms that hadn't been written yet. That hadn't been written yet. Exactly. (laughs) But he can quote from the Psalms and take them completely out of context. They have eyes, but they see not ears, but they hear not noses, but they smell not and tongues, but they taste not. And he says, well, if they're not going to do anything, I'm going to do something. Takes a stick, smashes all of them, except for one. Dad comes home, says, what is this mess? Kind of like risky business before Tom Cruise got a chance to clean up the house. And he says, well, they got into an argument about who was the most powerful. <laughs> and this guy won. <laughs> Dad says, I don't buy it. They're just stone and clay. And Abraham says, then why are you worshiping them? Wow. That's, that's, that's cool. great. That, yeah, that, that is phenomenal. And then, and then it gives credence to the question the rabbis are asking, why does Abraham have to leave his home, leave his father's house? Specifically, the Bible says, leave your home, leave your father's house to a place that I will show you. Well, he had this rift with his dad, this philosophical rift. Yeah. About And then there's another Midrash that goes on that yeah. I won't get into now, but about his father taking him to the king, and Nimrod was the king, and a whole test of faith. Um, but it, it just goes on and I've on. I've actually read that before, and there is a lot that Christians can learn that can extrapolate their understanding, and a lot of really great teachings and like that. That was amazing from the Midrash that really helps you to, I think for a lot of Christians... Um, 
you know, the Torah and, and the, the Pentateuch. These are things that I don't think that we study as much as we should. In the and, seminary, we studied Midrash for, you know, just one session of uh, biblical theology as well as just like application. And something that always struck me with that class was how, you know, you can apply these teachings to everything. Sometimes when you're reading the scriptures, it's like kind of like... Phew, What's the context? And you've got to read commentary. Like the book of read, yeah, like you've got to read history. You've got to really dig in deep to supplemental reading. But with the Midrash, I mean, it just drives points very poetically, very uh, in the context of Scripture, and really has in in spades application. And, and, I, and I think, Father, what you're talking about is to get the teaching that's underneath the surface yes. is we say the Torah is written black on white, mm -hmm. that the black is the text of what we're taught happened, and the white spaces in between is what might have happened, is the midrash that's in between when you oh, read yes, between the lines. Like but what you're talking about is taking that teaching as without the presumption of fact. Mm -hmm. The midrash is not considered factual. Right. It's considered a lesson. Now, I don't want to be sacrilegious. There are some Jewish people who take the Midrash as factual. I want to say on the outset, I don't represent all Jews or all rabbis, but the Talmud, which is the rabbinic teachings that came. That's in, more of the uh, more of the Middle Ages, correct? Um, no earlier than that. Uh, okay. Second to like 200 to 500 okay. in the common era. Um, these are the discussions that came about that had many disagreements that had many different versions. And I mean, this leads to the, to the popular joke in the Jewish community that if you've got three Jews, you've got five opinions. <laughs> but that started with the Talmud, yep. where the rabbis are having this discourse and they're not in the same room. So they are centuries. This conversation could be Rabbi Akiva says this, Rabbi Gamliel said this, and they live generations apart from each other. So the uh, Talmud would have been kind of post-temple worship, after the destruction of the temple, Correct. where it really goes from a temple-oriented to a rabbinic Exactly, faith. exactly. Yeah. That, the, that when the temple was destroyed, the rituals of sacrifices could no longer be done. Mm -hmm. And so that's when synagogues came about. That's when separate worship outside of Jerusalem came about. The poetry of prayer mm -hmm. and the rabbinic discourse of do, you know, I, do you remember that old commercial with um, Smith Barney and John Houseman? We make money the old-fashioned way. Yes. We earned it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like to say the rabbis, they they got their status the old-fashioned way. They learned it. Yeah. <laughs> and and that study became as sacred as, as sacrifice, sacrifice you know, used to one be. Of the, one of the things, too, about um, the Jewish tradition is— uh, and storytelling, you know, is, is that before, you know, the old Testament was written, there was thousands of years probably, or, uh, you know, of, of this, all of these stories being told now, generationally. Now here, right? Here's a point. You wouldn't call it the old Testament. What would Correct. you call it? Uh, we call it the Hebrew scriptures okay. or okay. the Bible or the Torah. Um, I got married not too long ago and I do not call her my first wife. She's, she's just she's my wife. I, I don't expect another one. Uh, well, even but, though you're wrong, could you still answer the question? <laughs> yes, I'm wrong about not having another wife. <laughs> Jacob and the four. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> but so the interesting thing about the Talmud is that this discourse went on for centuries, but it's called the oral law. Okay. So the oral law was originally not even supposed to be written down. But around the year 200, there was a rabbi named Judah Hanasi, Judah the priest, who said, we better start writing stuff down or else we'll forget it. Mm-hmm. So some of the conversations of the that became the Talmud started perhaps around the time of Jesus' lifetime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Jesus could have conceivably stuck his nose into some of these conversations. Mm-hmm. And they didn't come about until much later. See, I, I think that tradition kind of parallels within Catholicism. We do continue to follow scripture and the laws of scripture, but we also have sacred tradition, which is not stuff that's explicitly written in the Bible. It's stuff that from the teaching uh, cathedra, cathedra of the church that we have these laws. So I think there's a parallel between that yeah. scriptural and oral law within the church. And I, I think that tradition really underlines the whole thirst of the human person as it relates to give me something practical, right? So there's there's a synod that I, I came across in my own diocese from Northeast Florida that a number of priests got together in the 70s with the bishops, and they basically went through like a practicality lesson for priests. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. This And that type of practicality, I think we really look for because I, I really want this to be applied to my life. And I think that's why a lot of uh, my interest in the book of, uh, you know, Yeshua ben Sirach, like the, the, the book of Sirach offers that type of insightful practicality of lessons, like no. give me lessons that I can learn and glean from so that I can apply them to my day-to-day life. Now, well, the, Sirach would not be in your Bible, correct? That's from the Septuagint version. He doesn't have a Bible. Well, yes, yes. We get these words right. So Sirach would not be in there because that would have been from the, the Greek Alexandrian translation of the, the Jewish scriptures, which after the destruction, I think that's one of the lines of demarcation in how we view the Old Testament and the canon of the Old Testament that differs from the Jews, right? So, the Apocrypha. Yeah. Right. So it's possible that it's the Apocrypha, but there are things that are in the Apocrypha that um, that may have preceded what got into the Bible, what got into the, to, we call it the Tanakh, um, okay. Torah, uh, Nivim Ketuvim, which is an acronym for the Torah is the five books of Moses. Then the N of that acronym is the prophets. Mm-hmm. And the K of that acronym is the writings. Okay. So the writings are the more poet. The prophets are perhaps the more historical. Mm-hmm. And the writings are the more poetic. Okay. The book of Ruth, the book of Esther, Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, mm. etc. cetera. Um, but the part of the interesting thing about what's in there is how it changes. And also the Jewish word for law, for Jewish law is halacha, which comes from the verb to walk. So it's like the path. But what really becomes interesting is how customs feel like law. And I think this is what you're talking about, um, Father, is that sometimes we create customs and think of them as law. So, for instance, somebody uh, is naming a child, okay? The Jewish tradition is usually to name a child after someone who's passed away, all right? 
That's how we think about it because that's in the Ashkenazi tradition, mm-hmm. which is Th- from that's Eastern more Europe. Eastern Europe, and then right. there's a Sephardic. Sephardic tradition right. is more Middle East, and these are Jewish traditions. It's, so right. yeah, there, that would be like kind of the the Latin Church and the Eastern Church, where the Astrakhani is like uh, from. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I, the I just wanted to make Francis sure. Exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the so Ashkenazi Jews generally um, originated in Eastern Europe. Sephardic Jews generally originated in the Middle East. And so they have some different traditions. Sephardic Jews eat rice on Passover. Ashkenazic Jews don't. Sephardic Jews name their children after someone who's alive. Ashkenazic Jews name their children after someone who's passed away. And it doesn't mean that they've created a sin mm-hmm. if they decide they want to name their child. It's different from custom. What, yeah. One of the best customs I ever heard about was a, a young girl who was watching her mother make a roast. And she noticed that her mother cut off the ends of the roast. And she asked her, why did she do that? And she said, because that's the way my mother did it. And so the little girl went to her grandmother and said, you know, why did you always cut off the ends of the roast? And her grandmother said, because the pan was too small. this is how traditions get started that's pretty funny that's very good so let's you know let's talk a little bit about i guess the father of all of uh you know the monotheistic religion that's abraham now we already talked about it a little bit but abram of Ur, who became abraham and who god made his covenant with um i think I, i think that is the one person that so many people can rally around and that, you know, that promise that God made to Abraham that he was going to make his children as numerous as the as the stars or as the sand on the beach, you know, looking to him as a point of unity is I, I can't imagine someone more important to look at to start to get that dialogue and that unity between, you know, what we call the Abrahamic faiths. And those Abrahamic faiths, if we could list those. So, yeah, I mean, you have Judaism, you have Christianity, you have... Uh, Islam, you'll have uh, the Druze, you'll have the um, uh, the Baha'i. Baha'i. There's, there's, yep. there's um, uh, the Zoroastrians, I believe. Yeah, uh, kind of, yeah Zoroastrian might have preceded right. Judaism. Um, Not Zoroastrian, Sikh. Sikhs, yeah. Yep. There's, so there's a lot Sikhs, of them. Yeah. Monotheism, yep. monotheistic. Yeah. So there's yeah, a Jane. lot of yeah. There's a lot of faiths that will say Abraham is the father in in their faith. Uh, now, if I could say something about the. Um, because you referenced the, as numerous as the stars and mm-hmm. as the grains of sand, there's a beautiful midrash that comes also from uh, Genesis 12. The first two words of that of that passage is lech lecha, go to yourself, go forth. It's done by four letters, two letters repeated. Lech lecha is the same sounds, and. The it's just a change in vowels, mm-hmm. and the letter Lamed, which begins that, reaches above the line when you're writing it, and the Haf, the second letter, reaches below the line. And if you look at it visually, I, I wish I had a piece of paper to draw it. It's very much saying the stars. Who is a right? Who who is Abraham? But someone who hopefully would be able to connect with the heavens and be down to earth. Mm. Yeah. I, that's one of the things that, and all the things that I've read about Judaism is the, the puns almost in the language. 
And the way that they use those kind of similarities in names and words and then make little alterations to it is a really mm-hmm. deep tradition with a lot of really cool examples of things just like that. Right, right. Yeah. Avraham could be, could loosely be translated as father of many. Right. Or yeah. like, I, I know that like, uh, like Baal, right? In the Bible, the, the god of uh, the Canaanites, Baal, and they call him Beelzebub, right? So that would be like... That was a play on the words, correct me if I'm wrong, the Lord Ball, but it also changes it to the Lord of the Flies, right? So that mm-hmm. he was a stinky God who was circling around, you know, excrement, right? So they would use these kind of just very subtle nuances in the way they would pronounce a word or add something to make it almost a joke. It's a very clever literary tradition that I've noticed in Jewish writings. Yes. And it, it also fills in our Christian tradition in a very beautiful way to understand a lot of these things. And we're going to get into some of that later. Yeah, and and you can even see something like that in Paul and Saul. So before you had Saul, who was named after, you know, uh, David's predecessor. But then when he had his conversion, he changed it to Paul. And so it's that same kind of Jewish Mm -hmm. tradition of one little change in the sound of a word completely changes. So he went from this, you know, stately and, you know, person to Paul, which means the littlest of all. Yeah. So again, that shows that Jewish nature of of the, depth. the yeah it's just the depth, existential man. the existential transformation absolutely and and that's that's important to realize too for priests we believe in the in the sacramental church where there's you know transformation that takes place substantially in relationship to the bread and the wine that we receive at mass we believe existentially that that transforms but even in the sacrament of the priesthood and holy orders that there's an existential change to a person and a person is is identified as father because existentially a sacrament a visible sign of an invisible reality that comes from god there's something there and clearly my whole life is ordered in a different way as a priest, as prior to becoming a priest, my whole activity day in and day out has radically transformed. And similarly for, you know, a rabbi, your position as, as you know, living out that existential reality, I'm curious to find out, like, how you receive this identity and this kind of transformation in your own, in your own experience. That's a, that's yeah. a great question, because as different from a priest, the rabbi is a layperson. We don't we don't presume a special connection with God more special than any other human being. The word rabbi means teacher. Yeah. So again, you, you, you learned, learned it. it. We learned it exactly. <laughs> yes. nice and continue to learn. So when I first started, when I first started in this profession, yeah. really, what I felt like was that every week I had to come up with something really special to talk about. And I so, know that feeling. Yeah, because he's there. You go. Exactly. <laughs> and what I found was, I, I called it in my own mind, looking for the sacred and the ordinary. And I would find these ordinary things that would hit me differently. And I really wondered, I still wonder, did I notice those things before? Did I create that need when I needed to come up with a sermon or did I always look at those things? And I don't know the answer to that question, Yeah, yeah. but and, to find those, those and, nuances. And it's so true. And I, I find the same thing in my priesthood as well in relationship to how I look at the ordinary, how I'm interacting with the people of God that I'm ministering to and, and the people just in the public space and just interacting with them and in, in the grocery exactly. store. Yeah. And, and, and when I'm and, in the grocery store or an Astros game, I'm not sensing, you know, 
I'm the Astro's rabbi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Although I did marry an Astro once. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. He he's not on the team anymore. He pitched for Team Israel. Nice. Josh Zai. Oh, that's so cool. Is his name, and he he had some good success with Team Israel. And, cool. and I think you know a misnomer too. And this is this is not just you know outside of Catholicism, but it's even within Catholicism that people look to the priest as you have a privileged relationship with God, and then you you know, and in a sense, we are set apart in relationship to our celibacy. But at the same time, you know, my personal holiness depends on the zeal of living that out and, and trying and striving for holiness. But that's somewhat likely, you know, in, in everybody's, you know, in everybody's universal call to holiness. And I find greater strength coming from like the elders of, of the faith and people who have lived out their faith and their, you know, daily communicants and they they're observing, you know, the commandments of the Lord and and living that out beautifully, it inspires me and it, it strengthens me to even move forward in my own journey. It's a beautiful way to say yeah. it because how often does someone come to you and say, please pray for me yes. or pray for my father or pray for my sister. Mm-hmm. And I'm tempted to want to say your prayers are just as important as yes. mine. It's uh, so true. Right. But it, what, but so, but what I've come to do is basically to hold them in my heart, say, I'll join my prayers with yes. yours. And I think that catechizes people too, as well. It's like you have an office yourself before God to be able to speak to that. For for Catholics in baptism, we believe that every baptized member of the faith is priest, prophet, and king. Ah. So, and priest by office is one that makes intercession and sacrifices. So, I'm willing to join my sacrifices to yours. I'm willing to join my prayers with yours, so that we may communally address your need. And, and that, for my office and my, my desire, my longing, my love, is that's my whole life. That's the order of my life. And I, I wouldn't want yeah, to live in the, that order In the Catholic tradition, uh, priests are saying you are, you know, in the order of Melchizedek, right? And Melchizedek was, um, you know, from the old, from the Bible. <laughs> you, you, you use your terms, God. I'll use mine. <laughs> so Melchizedek, so priests are in the order of Melchizedek, and correct me if I'm wrong, Abraham, upon the covenant, that, that initial covenant, Abraham uh, was made uh, saw, uh, offerings with Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, I don't know what the Midrash says about him, but even according to Catholic theology, he could have been a life, a uh, real person, a a priest, or he could have been um, St. Michael the Archangel because he said he has no um, no predecessors and there's no one like him. Uh, Melchizedek, to me, is one of the most interesting characters, but yeah. that, that priesthood of Melchizedek is different than that priesthood of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood, right? And I think the Catholic priesthood really is more viewed as that continuation of that that Melchizedek priest. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and in in our tradition, the priests like Aaron, the, the descendants of the priests, were the ones who fulfilled the rituals of the sacrifice. Right. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, that that fits with with the Catholic priesthood. That word priest. There's an interesting essay um, by a man named Achad Ha'am, who was an Israeli uh, of the 20th century, who talked about the priest and the prophet. And the way he categorized it was that the priest, because the priest is doing rituals and connecting with Mm -hmm. the people and bringing their offerings to the temple, the priest is the one who's there with the people. The prophet is the one who's speaking out, telling them what they're doing wrong and how they're going to be punished if they continue on their ways. And the 
the question, one of my uh, one of my assignments for rabbinical school was, should the American rabbi be more priest than prophet? And it was a, a telling moment in my writing because I'm a guy of the people, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just before I submitted it, I sent it to a very good friend of mine who's a rabbi and he called me immediately and I said, I've read your essay. It's very well written. And I disagree with you 100%. <laughs> nice. And he said, that's your problem, Dan. Everything's okay. You're so accepting of everyone. And the prophet who's saying what you're doing wrong, you got to push people sometimes. So, you know, I think the next thing that I want to talk about is the context of of our Lord, the Blessed Virgin, and the Apostles, and the fact that historically and through their practice and through their faith, they were Jews. I mean, this is some this is a historical truth. It is something that completely undergirds everything that we understand about them and all the things that they did was done through this prism of their very faithful, very adherent to the law. They didn't celebrate Christmas? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Um, probably not. Of course not. Well, I mean, maybe. Well, I mean, yeah, they did because Jesus had birthdays. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh boom. Boom. Yeah. Mary. Mary was the first uh, holiday shopper. Look at that. <laughs> but they might have celebrated his birthday on his birthday rather than December twenty fifth. Yeah. Good point. Well, according to Jew or uh, Christian tradition, uh, and this would go would go back to one of those kind of. Jewish customs, from as far as I know, is that uh, somebody who was the, the, someone who died, uh, an important person would die on the same day they were conceived. So uh, the feast of the Annunciation, which celebrates when the um, Our Lady was um, conceived, conceived um, miraculously, is on March twenty fifth. And then, according to you know, if you look at the calendars of 33 AD, that would have lined up with the Friday of Passover, which would have been March 25th. So he mm-hmm. died and conceived on March 25th. Nine months later, is December 25th. There you go. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But you know what also is interesting about that is that in the Jewish tradition, we observe the day of death rather than the day of birth. Yeah. That when we celebrate somebody's life. We light a candle every year on the anniversary of their death, because in my opinion, this isn't what Judaism says. In my opinion, it's because after their death, we're celebrating everything they've done. Mm-hmm. When we celebrate your birthday, you haven't done anything yet. We do and, that and, too. The, and the same type of thing in, in our tradition as well, in relationship to when we remember people of notoriety and great holiness. Their feast days. Their a saint's feast, feast days. Day. A saint's feast day is okay. always associated, if they can, with the day that they die. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, we have a calendar that's packed, so there's some variation. But traditionally speaking, it's then. And then not so much of a celebration of birthday throughout Europe and the European tradition, but also the name day. So why you were named a particular name. So the Feast of St. Richard, for example, would be a day that I would celebrate more and Emphatically than my actual birthday. Uh-huh. So it, it comes into like real American kind of popular way of celebrating somebody's birth as opposed to like March 17th, yeah. St. Patrick's Day. That was traditionally the day that he died so that he was getting his feast in heaven. That's what we, we, call it we also day. encourage. But it's not through the cultural traditions. We also encourage the, the your baptism date as your birthday, right? Because yeah. you're being born into the church and to Christ. But we digress. We have. Yes. So we, so we won't di- get into your circumcision day. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
eight days after. <laughs> <laughs> so, My son was actually circumcised by a rabbi at, at Walter Reed. They, yeah. do, they do a good job. Well, <laughs> they, was it the hospital? <laughs> they know what they're doing. Yes, so wasn't the hospital closed? No hesitation. <laughs> wasn't the hospital closed or something? It was. He was born on Thanksgiving Day. Okay. We had so to pay extra. You, 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 have to, you have to indulge the circumcision song. Oh, boy. Yes. When I was only eight days old, hurrah, hurrah. When I was only eight days old, hurrah, hurrah. A man came at me with a knife. I thought that he would take my life, but he only took a little bit off the top. <laughs> Very nice. I've never heard that. Wow. Most people have it. Didn't till now. Yes. Catholics, we're in the know now. So... The apostles, what, I mean, you see this in, in the New Testament. You see the apostles calling Jesus rabbi. They, you see him calling him Rabboni, right? He learned it. He, Our he, teacher. Yeah. So, I mean, they were incredibly Jewish. That's who they were. And Rabbonu would be our teacher. Right. The new at the end. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. We, we refer to Moshe Rabbeinu okay. as Moses, our teacher. Mm-hmm. Nice. So uh, one of the things that I think that this is most evident in, I mean, you'll see it all throughout scripture that they were going, uh, they were doing the, Mary would take Jesus uh, eight days after birth or the purification. Uh, They would have, you know, they fought with the teachers when they were picking grains on on the Sabbath, right? So, I mean, you could tell that this was a very deeply Jewish, um, you know, people, but the, the last supper, in the context of it being a Seder meal is one of the, I think the most interesting ways to look at the very historical truth of the Judaism of the apostles and, and our Lord. And then how that, um, that Seder meal, the symbology behind it, and then the institution of the Eucharist, how those are very intimately tied together. The lamb of God, right? right. That's what we call Jesus. And that's through the, the Passover. Right. So why don't you explain a little bit for us Gentiles, what the Passover meal is and why that's historically celebrated. So it's the Exodus. Mm-hmm. It's the Exodus from Egypt. And it's a ritual that includes 15 things in order. The word Seder means order. <clears throat> and it's a, it's almost an ironic piece that it says that we're supposed to remember this in a very, very specific way. We were released from bondage to come into a tradition that we're expected to follow. The Seder itself that we observe now was developed in the times of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. So, it would, so it would have been developed after Jesus's lifetime, but it is mentioned in the Torah. So the idea of eating unleavened bread, etc., would have been a tradition or a ritual that he may have that he may have done, and according to Christian tradition, he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that it would be observed, and yet all the nuances were created by the rabbis much later. Mm-hmm. What are some of those nuances? I know there's like the bitter herbs. I know that there's you know the the cups. I know that there's the, the progression of the meal. There's yes. the singing of certain psalms. Correct. Yes. There's a there's a progression. There are different rituals in terms of. Um, remembering the bitterness of slavery with the bitter herbs or with salt water, which is the salt of tears. And it's pouring pouring some of the cup out for the the drowned Egyptian homies. Exactly. That there's, there is another Midrash in the, um, in the Torah. Well, in the Midrash actually, where the Israelites are dancing as they cross the sea of reeds. 
the angels begin to dance and sing. And God says, how can you be rejoicing when my children are suffering? The Egyptian soldiers are my children too. And so from that Midrash, in the second cup of wine, we pour out a drop for all of the plagues, one for each of the 10 plagues Mm -hmm. that were suffered upon the Egyptians, because we say we're not to rejoice because someone else suffered. We're rejoicing for our freedom, but how sad it was that others suffered because of it. Um, And there's a lot of fours. Mm -hmm. The four cups of wine relate to four promises in the book of Exodus that God gave the Israelites. I will take you out of Egypt. I will redeem you from slavery. I will take you to be my people. Um, And I'll make you a people of my own. And I will make you a people of my own. And... Within the Seder, there are other stories. There are four children who ask different questions and learn in different ways. Um, And in Jewish learning, there are four steps to learning. There's There's the literal meaning of every text. There's allegories. There's stories and midrash that embellish it. And there's a Kabbalistic approach. And so there's a Kabbalistic is more about the, the numerology and the, the and isn't it like angelic and numerology and a deeper understanding. Numerology of that? comes into it, but it, it's more the Kabbalistic is more the mystical, the the very deep part that few people will ever get. Okay. That that's the, that's called the sod, which is the secret. The the four the four levels begin with Peshat, which is the literal meaning Remez, which is allegories and metaphors, kind of like what I talked about with the letter Lamed reaching mm-hmm. into the sky. And the drash is, are the stories that embellish it. And, uh, and then the sod is that mystical piece, kind of like a baseball diamond. Mm. Um, there, there's, a, there's a book that was edited by Rabbi Judy Abrams of Blessed Memory called What's Jewish About the National Pastime? And I actually have an article in that book describing those four levels of Jewish learning as they relate to baseball diamond. Yes. So one of the things about, I think that I think is really interesting is that there's the four cups that you have during a traditional Seder meal. And then there's a fifth cup that no one has because that is anticipation for Jews of, of the messianic deliverance or whatnot. And then there's also the, the uh, invitation of Elijah. Yes. So, right. So toward the end of the Seder, after the meal with, with between the third and fourth cup, we open the door for a Eli- to welcome Elijah in. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the Passover Seder is centered around making it fun for the kids. So is 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 Elijah like the same as like Jesus coming at the end? Is no. that how? No, Elijah. Elijah would be a foreteller of messianic deliverance. Okay, and so Elijah, he come in. From what I've read, that Elijah also checks to make sure that all the men are circumcised and everybody's ready, <laughs> and it prepares them for, I guess, um, eschatologically for a deliverance. Yes, there are a lot of legends about Elijah traveling the world in disguise as a beggar, as different kinds of, of personifications to check and see if we're ready. And, and there was there was one very poetic way of looking at it that that I found very beautiful, um, worded by a poet named Danny Siegel that says, if we were to treat each person as if that person was Elijah in disguise, then our words and actions would change in such a way that if the Messiah's identity isn't revealed in our lifetime, it might not matter. 
that we would create that utopian age. Gotcha. Um, but we, but in the Seder, we open the door for the mystical Elijah. We sing Eliyahu Hanavi to welcome him in while the kids are all looking at the door. Sometimes the rabbi will stick an Alzheimer's tablet in Elijah's cup of wine and the kids will come back and it'll be fizzing up and they'll be like, oh my God, he's drinking it. Uh, you know, all kinds of interesting things that happen. I, I think my, my nephew went away from religion entirely when he was three years old and was told Elijah's coming and he went to the door and no one was there. And he said, religion's all a lie because we, we, we bring these these traditions and these, yeah. we write Customs. these myths yeah. exactly. So, if you look at the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist and the in the institution of the Holy Orders, so you have your first cup, and that's that represents the the blessing of the festival day, and then the second cup. And this is kind of abbreviated version uh, is the beginning of the Passover liturgy in the in the Psalm one thirteen is sung. Then the third cup is the cup of blessing. Take this, all of you, and he blesses the cup with his holy and venerable hands, and 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 a seder, and it involves the meal and the unleavened bread. So that's when they would have been actually. Eating. Eating, and that's when they would have dipped the, the bread last, last the, supper. Yeah, yeah, that was the last supper. It was a so, Seder meal. Right. Yeah. It was because yeah. this was happening during the Passover. We yep. know that from Scripture. Yeah. Now, the fourth cup, the fourth cup is the, the climax of the Passover, and that's when Passover concludes. The fifth cup is not to be drunk until the Messiah. deliverance. Right. Yeah. So the fourth cup. After the after the third cup, the, you would sing. Before the fourth cup, you sing the great Hillel Psalms. Right. And, and Hallel means praise. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah is praise be to God. Mm -hmm. Yah being yeah. the first two yeah. letters mm -hmm. of God's first name. So mm -hmm. when you hear in, 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 in Scripture that the Jesus and the apostles went to the Garden of Gethsemane and they were singing psalms, it says this, right? So you can conclude that they were singing these psalms before the fourth cup was to be drunk, concluding the uh, Passover. But he was arrested. So he was never able to conclude that Passover. Now, remember... They dipped the sponge in wine and vinegar and gave it to him. And then he drank it and said, it is concluded. And then he also said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it in the Father's kingdom, that fifth cup. So when he drinks that wine on the cross mixed in, that's the fourth cup. That is concluding the sacrifice of the Passover. And he says it's finished. And then that fifth cup, he will drink it again new in the kingdom. So if you understand the Seder meal and the Passover and the blood of the lamb, as a Christian and understand the deeply symbolic things that would have been apparent to a Jewish person of the time, it makes a whole lot more sense in a very deep, mystical and symbolical uh, way. And the sense of liturgia and liturgy and this remembrance and ritual bridges from the practices of the foundation of the apostolic church with Judaistic practices. So the, the practice of what you're talking about in relationship to what we do at Eucharist and Seder bridge in a beautiful way between that lineage of faith of the of our father Abraham, really. And it's and it's a beautiful bridge when it's explored and discussed. And we had a we had a rabbi come to the seminary and perform the Seder and and guide us through an instructional experience when we were at the seminary years ago. Wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, I, I just love this this conversation because it's tying that together and it's tying our relationships together. Something that you're very passionate about, Rabbi. So in, in that in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was like, let this cup pass from my hands. 
Well, Christians are like, okay, cool. It's just a metaphor or something. What cup? What cup is passing? What cup is he praying to have passed from his hand? It's that fourth, fourth cup. cup. It's that cup that he knows is only going to be able to be drunk um, after his sacrifice, after the Paschal lamb has been sacrificed. Now, when they in, in the Passover, when they're marking the doors with the blood of the lamb so that the angel of death would pass over the, house of, uh, the houses of, of the Hebrews, they used hyssop to mark the doorways, the sponge. And it even says in there that the wine and the sponge were mixed with hyssop. So the, again, it has that meaning recalling the, the doorways and the blood of the lamb and all of it mixed together. So understanding these kind of, you cannot get a full understanding of what our Lord and the apostles did without getting a deeper understanding of, of the Jewish faith and history. So as something as, as a Catholic and all Christians really need to understand so they can better understand themselves and their brothers. And when we conclude the Jewish Passover Seder, the last line is Lashana Habab Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem, that we're always looking forward to that unification. And Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, if you look at the words again, these puns that, you, that you've talked about before, Ryan, um, Ir Shalem, a city of peace. Mm-hmm. Shalem and Shalom, same letters, different vowels. Shalem means complete, and Shalom means peace. And so we're talking about next year, we're looking forward to coming closer to a complete peace. Mm. Amen. That is that, and talking about like humanly speaking, the aspirations of that inner longing for peace and completeness in each of our lives. I think that's written down deeply in a philosophical anthropology because that is deeply who we are as a people. And we are longing for that peace, longing for that completeness. And we have to be that fratres pontifices. We have to be that Latin for build, builders of bridges. We need to build bridges. And again, something that you've done with a greater portion of your life and ministry is building bridges. And I know when it comes down to what what the Jews suffered in the 20th century in relationship or to historically World War II, and longer. Well, well, of course, but but you know, as it relates to Catholic Jewish tradition and relationships, what I really am interested in is is looking at Papa Bono. You know. Pope John the 23rd, who was identified by the Jewish people as their pope. He was the pope of the Jewish people. And he had a deep love and affection because it, he was responding to the suffering people of his region that he was ministering to as a Vatican diplomat. Because he was, he was in the Middle East. He was a diplomat to uh, Constantinople. He was in Turkey. He was in that area. Turkey and Greece and, and Bulgaria. So, and so remind me which pope this was. This John, was the John the 23rd. Okay. So, yeah. So he was have been a diplomat uh, so he during the show. Okay, okay. Yeah. So yeah. he would he would he would have, which uh, is kind of why John Paul took on the name he did. John was, Paul the there first. was John the twenty third, then Paul the sixth, and then John Paul the first said, "Well, I'm just going to continue the work." Right. John Paul, and then John Paul the one died. John Paul two. And I right. think relative history, you know, in, in sincerity, looking at Saint John Paul the second. You know, clearly his relationship with the Jews is tremendous. His first girlfriend was Jewish. His first girlfriend was Ginkgo Beer, Jewish. <laughs> yes. it, that it, was it, while it, I was Pope. In fact, incorrect. But actually, a neighbor of mine from Houston a, a number of years ago went to high school with him. Wow. Oh, how cool and, is that? And spoke about, as she was in the girls' school and he was in the boys' school, wow. but she talked about his... Dramatic ability. She saw him in plays, mm-hmm. and she actually 
knew the Pope. That's neat. So, I mean, if you look historically at the context of Jewish-Christian relationships, it's not always been so great. I mean, if we're being realistic, it's really sure. been it's really been a pretty troubled past. Uh, but I don't think that's from the lacking of uh, the lacking of trying from at least the higher reaches of the Catholic Church, uh, especially the popes. I mean, there's been multiple popes who really tried to defend the Jewish people, but because of the nature of other and then the the slur of well, deicide or whatever, it just it, it, things spiraled out of control on the ground level. But if you look back even to early as 540 with Pope Gregory, Pope Gregory was writing letters to all like the bishops, uh, like particularly the bishops of Arles and Marseille. He said, for it is necessary to gather those who are at odds with the Christian religion with meekness and faithfulness and kindness. And he outlawed any threats to any forced conversions. Mm-hmm. And consecutive popes throughout the ages have always said that. But then the people on the ground... People treat the other terribly. And similarly for the for the um, action liturgically, when we are praying on Good Friday, when we pray for the Jews, what was stricken from the liturgy is the word perfidious. That's correct. Be- and it, it's not that it, historically it was used pro fide, you know, like so that without that without faith, that, right. that they don't have the faith in this action of Jesus in this cup that that was just perfectly described by you, uh, Sheil. But to see that it then became an offensive term. Exactly. And then who struck it from the liturgy was actually Papa Bono. You know, was John the 23rd. And he did so because of his great love and realizing in his relationship that this was being treated as an offensive term. And clearly that meekness that we need to have in our relationship, our relationship with anybody needs to be one rooted in humility and meekness. Right. And when you talk about the what the people on the ground have done against what the what the leadership may have taught, it's I think it's one of the reasons why. Jewish people have a hard time thinking about Jewish Jesus as being a Jewish person who taught from what you call the Old Testament, right. who taught from what at his time there wasn't a New Testament. Right. During the time of Jesus, he taught from the Testament that existed. Yeah. And I think the Jewish people have a hard time recognizing some of the really wonderful, beautiful Jewish teachings that Jesus has done because all those difficulties happened by people who were pretending they were doing it in his name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I could definitely see that. I mean, if, you know, if people are proposing that they're acting on behalf of the Catholic Church, even contrary to the teaching of the church and teaching treating people terribly, it's the time. Yeah. And, and there isn't Fear. there isn't a religion on this planet right. that has pe- that in which there aren't people who misrepresent what their religion is supposed mm-hmm. to teach mm-hmm. in order to say I am more right than you mm-hmm. are. And that's in that's in religion, that's in nations, sports. that's in politics, that's well, in we sports. Are right. That's aren't we? <laughs> so well, clearly. So I thought I was right about everything. And, and I'm willing to say that the Steelers have not won any more Super Bowls than the Patriots have. Hard-headed, hard-headed. So there is a really important document that I think that all Christians should read and, and Jews should read as well is Sikut Judeus. And it was written by 
Pope Alexander III. And this is as far back as the 1160s. And this was really a codification of how a Christian was supposed to interact with their Jewish brothers. And it says, the Jews ought to suffer no prejudice. We, out of the meekness of Christian piety and keeping in the tradition of the footprints of our predecessors, admit their petition and we grant them the buckler of our protection. The papacy specifically took on the protection of Jewish people. For we make no law that no Christian can compel them, unwilling or refusing by violence to come to baptism. But if any of them should be spontaneously by the sake of the faith fly to Christians, once this choice has been evident, let us accept them without any calumny. Indeed, so he goes on, no Christian ought to presume to injure persons with violence, take their property, to change the customs which they have had until now in any of the regions they inhabit. They shall be able to celebrate their own festivities. No one ought to disturb them in any way with clubs, stones, nor anyone require from them to extort them from services they do not know increase taxes, except for those that have been accustomed from times past to perform. So we not dare mutilate or diminish a Jewish cemetery, nor in any way exhume bodies or anything. So, I mean, it was a really specific Christians are not to do this. By order of the Pope, if you hurt, if you injure, if you prevent them from celebrating their customs as is, if you force conversions, you are not acting in accordance with the Catholic faith. But we know that didn't happen. No, that's why he wrote it. Right. Because you know? it was going on. <laughs> well, you know what? That is, a, that is an excellent point, Ryan, because you don't prohibit something Bef- unless someone unless somebody's violating it already. Right. And this was right. written in front right? of the blind. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This was written in the context of the Crusades because yeah. they were going over there. Pillaging. They were coming in, in increased contact with Jewish people because they were moving to the east. They're going to the uh, Holy Land. So obviously this was going on, but I mean, there's been so many popes that have done this. But I think the document that has really... Um, I think most clearly spelled this out is from Vatican II, which is... Nostra Aetate. That's correct. And Nostra Aetate was written, it means in our time, and it was written um, as a document of the Second Vatican Council. And this was inspired by by Papa Bono, John XXIII, and the Pope of the Jews, because his great love for the Jewish people when he was that Vatican diplomat all throughout the Middle East and Constantinople, and he was... Single-handedly, single-handedly saving Jews, over 50,000 Jews from going to the Holocaust. And he was doing so by writing document, documentation, fake issuing baptisms. fake baptismal certificates. Yeah. And, and that type of courage matched with uh, Pius XII in relationship to what the church was doing in relationship to you know, what was happening violently to them during the Holocaust was really an important point of seeing this is that bridge that we need to build. These are the relationships that we need to build. Because I think difference sometimes can cause uh, conflict and fear. And it's based in fear because I don't know you. And I'm, I'm worried as we get to know each other, we're going to have difference that's going to result in violence. Where difference can actually become a beautiful point of compliment and contrast and covering that completeness that we're moving to, toward. Right. You just piece. need to look at the at, at the beginning of Exodus, mm-hmm. where it says a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Mm-hmm. For generations, the Israelites lived in Egypt in peace yes. because they knew each other. Mm-hmm. And so when we are separated in different places and in different theologies and not communicating with each other, 
That's when we don't know each other, and that breeds the fear that you were just talking fear. about. Yes, and there was an ignorance article written it, it, yes. exactly ignorance, and it is tied to ignorance because. And there was an article, a beautiful article called "The Death of Dialogue" that I read, and it's a social media critique of how people just go on social media just to present their ideology and blast everybody else's. <laughs> and it's like there's no dialogue, there's no conversation. And what I love about our show is it's that not a place for conversation. It, it's not, a, it's but not. It, it potentially could be. It, yeah, but it's it is a perfect breeding ga- ground for ignorance. killing, yeah. <laughs> killing dialogue and ignorance. And do you know what we regard as the most sacred teaching in all of Torah, in Deuteronomy, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Shema. Listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Hear, listen. That listening is the most important sense there can be. Mm-hmm. I'm writing for a grant currently for uh, missing voices. And, you know, we go through and through and we're, we're talking about what are the communities that feel that they're not being listened to? And so we're discussing roundtabling and, and, you know, we talked about mental health. We talked about people who are struggling, struggling with suicidal ideation. And this is all focused on the, the, the communities in our midst that are not being listened to. Yes. Take a look at Jobst Bittner, um, a German pastor who wrote a book. I think it's called Unveiling the Silence. Yes. So, so we ultimately came down to looking at all of these different communities and the missing voices of people feeling like they are not being heard. We really highlighted the human sexuality, and especially when it comes to the LGBTQ movement. It's like we want to be able to listen and to adhere, you know, to sit down and have conversation, meaningful dialogue. And that is what we are as human beings. That's the way we ought to be. So we shouldn't be threatened in any type of setting, but to sit down and get to know one another and not allow ignorance to breed violence, but to actually allow dialogue to breed peace. Sure. Ignorance is the lack of knowledge, the lack of learning. Combating ignorance is just about learning about each other. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you said that that hero Israel, even when our when Jesus was specifically asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said the hero Israel and the second is like it. So I, I again, that is that commandment. Hero Israel, the Lord is God is one. You know? And love your neighbor as yourself. Right. The, the most repeated verse in all of Torah is something to the effect of, as in different variations, treat the stranger as one of your own. Yep. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Well, you are a stranger to us, and I hope that you feel like you are, you are very welcome, much. Yeah. I, I thank you for not teaching me. I have a question, though, like, and this, is, this comes back all the way back to my undergrad years when we studied a, a Hebrew text, and I have no idea. You may not know either, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. It's something that we studied in our courses of sacred music, and it goes something like this. Baruch Adonai HaMevorak Le'olam Vahed Le'olam Vahed Le'olam Vahed Baruch Adonai HaMevorak Le'olam Vahed Yes. Never heard it before in my life. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But, uh, it is actually the, uh, it's the second line when we, when we say Shema out loud, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Baruch Adonai HaMavorach Le'olam Va'ed is the second line, um, which is not in Torah. So 
when we do it in our worship service, we say that six word Shema, then we interject the line you just sang so beautifully. And then we go on with what comes right after it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. Baruch Adonai HaMuvarach Leolam Va'ed means um, blessed is God's glorious kingdom, Malchuto, his kingdom, Leolam Va'ed forever and ever. Amen. I think we'd all agree on that. Yes. (laughs) Now, Now, the interesting thing about that is that in a traditional synagogue, that is not said aloud. It is said silently between the Shema and the next paragraph because of the old superstition of announcing a kingdom in somebody else's kingdom could be dangerous. So we would say that line silently, except on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, in which we don't give a hoot who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> that is so beautiful. No. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That, it's like seared in my brain, and I'll never forget Not it. a bad line to be yeah. seared in your brain. Yeah, not yes. at all. Well, right. thanks for being here. Yeah, this, oh, was, yeah. this was my awesome. pleasure. I mean, well, you know, I, I, I really love, I, I've always said, and in fact, a lot of people in my congregation are a Jewish person who's married to a non-Jewish person, and I've often said if, if my entire congregation were Jewish, I'd be bored because yeah. I really love the interaction. I love the learning and we are not all the same. We don't all think the same, but we can learn and respect from each other. Um, and in fact, I've done one, one time I was the keynote speaker at a Presbyterian minister sem- seminar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd love to do that. If anybody is interested in learning more about me, it's simple, rabbidangordon.com. Um, right. And yeah, so any, any of you organizations out there that are looking to get a deeper understanding, I know we were only really able to scratch the surface here, but if you're looking for a opportunity to have your congregation, whether it's a Christian congregation or something else, to get a deeper understanding of either your Jewish roots of the Christian faith or Judaism itself, yeah, Pastor Dan, this was uh, Pastor, Pastor Dan. Dan. Pastor Dan. Oh, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick. Yeah. Yeah. This was this was excellent, and I I couldn't recommend it enough because this this conversation was really yeah. uh, really educational awesome. and really you know fruitful. Nice. Well, if I could just add one more piece of teaching, it, it's it's about the separation. You know, when in uh, in Genesis, when creation comes about, creation comes about by separation. The word is lehavdil. God separated the light from the darkness. God separated the firmament above and the firmament below, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a rabbi who was teaching his class about the separation between the Sabbath and the rest of the week. And that blessing, we say, blessed is God who separates the sacred from the ordinary. And there's this beautiful, beautiful short ceremony called Havdalah, which comes from the same word, separation. And like anything else, there's something technical about it. When do you separate? When does night begin? When does night begin and the day of the Sabbath end? And the technical... Is that with the red threads? No, that's not the red threads. Okay. No, no red threads. Well, you can't tell the difference between a red and a black thread, then it's technically sundown? Haven't heard that one. Okay. But that could have been one of the guesses. That could have been one of the guesses. When it really is sundown is when three stars are visible in the sky. Interesting. So... That's that's what the custom says. So one of the students asked, if day ends and night begins when three stars are visible in the sky, 
when does night end and day begin? And that's where yours, but I hadn't heard that one. The students are guessing because the rabbi says, what do you think? And one says, maybe it's when you can tell the difference between a goat and a sheep. And he says, that's not it. And another one says, well, what about when from a distance you can tell the difference between a fig tree and a palm tree? He said, that's not it either. They keep guessing until finally the student who asked the question says, so rabbi, you tell us, when is it that night ends and day begins? And the rabbi says, when you can look into the eyes of a stranger and see your brother or your sister. Oof. Until then, it will always be dark for us. That's amazing. What a phenomenal way to end this beautiful, beautiful time together. My brothers and sisters, thank you for separating your time and making this a priority to your life and, and a weekly engagement in our content. And we thank you so much, Rabbi Dan, for Yeah, we really us. appreciate it. This was awesome. I'd love to have you back to My pleasure. Tremendous experience. We've got today. more to talk about. Absolutely. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Yeah. So until next week, my friends, it's always a joy journeying with you at the Catholic Talk Show. Remember, stop in at our website, catholictalkshow.com, and support us at Catholic Talk Show, uh, you know, and all of our social media presence on Twitter, Instagram, and, and Facebook, and our Patreon app to, to support us financially at patreon.com forward slash Catholic Talk Show. Again, we'll see you next week. God bless. Mm-hmm.